Welcome to week 43 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week, I am taking a look at the peerless Amy Bloom's second novel, Away, which I read soon after it came out in 2007. I think I picked it up in Waterstones, intrigued by the cover, and read it pretty swiftly, as it is a mild 270 pages. I reread it about four or five years ago, just after reading her 2018 novel, White Houses, about Eleanor Roosevelt. Spoilers abound in this review, but this is a book that you can read with pleasure, whether you know the plot or not. It is Bloom's beautiful reconstruction of the heroine and her journey that consumed the reader. Although not all readers, as I discovered looking at the 5% one-star reviews of the book on Goodreads, of which more later. Away opens with the arrival of Lillian Leib in New York in June 1924, a young woman of 22. We discover her story through her nightmares, through the complications which beset her. She was born and raised in a village called Turov in what is now modern Belarus, was then Russia, near the Pripyat River. And one night, the Gentile neighbours of the town succumb to a fury and go through the village, murdering the Jewish people besides whom they had lived for decades, even centuries. Lillian's nightmares repeat her return to consciousness after her home has been attacked, as she realises that she is seeing the bodies of her husband, father, mother, mangled, bloody, as she understands that her little daughter Sophie, aged just two, is not in the chicken coop where Lillian had told her to hide, but has vanished. At first, Lillian searches desperately for Sophie, but when her Aunt Mariam tells Lillian that she saw Sophie floating down the river, then presses a flyer for a 45-ruble crossing to America, it seems there is no point in remaining in the place where she has become, to quote Bloom, an orphan, a widow, and the mother of a dead child. Lillian sells what little she has left, is given the coat of a dead woman, a leather satchel that had once belonged to the dairyman's now dead brother, and leaves Turov behind her. When I first read the novel, I was absolutely swept up in the narrative, which is relentless. Lillian's arrival in New York, the gradual revelation of her past, her climb from grinding poverty and communal living to meeting the demands of her lovers, a theatrical father and son, and then the revelation that her beloved Sophie is alive. Lillian leaves New York, but instead of returning to Russia the way she came across the Atlantic, she consults her only real friend, a tailor, Yakov, and together they decide that she is better off crossing the US and making her way to Russia via Alaska and the Bering Strait. She smuggles herself onto trains, paying porters to turn a blind eye to her presence in broom cupboards perched amidst buckets and mops until she eventually reaches Seattle. There, she takes the wrong exit out of the station and is mugged and left for dead by her assailants. Gathered up by a tiny black woman called Gumdrop, Lillian becomes her dresser, assistant and co-conspirator. Gumdrop is a prostitute and her pimp, her cousin Snooky Salt, is both cheating her out of money and cheating on her with other women. Gumdrop is the first person that Lillian meets whose experiences and world have been as tough and traumatic as her own. Gumdrop's father and sister died of influenza in 1916 and while she was trying to keep the family farm going, her mother 
a healer had to go out to work. The farm is invaded by two white men who rape her at aged 14. She has a baby the next year and then leaves her family to go to the city where she aims to make enough money to take care of her mother and her baby. After two years, she is ready, writes home, waits, waits and writes again, only to receive a letter from the local minister informing her of the death of her mother and her child. Lillian and Gumdrop work together to outwit Snooky, although their plan has a twist to it. The outcome does allow Lillian to continue on her way, having paid her debt to Gumdrop. She reaches Canada, ends up wintering in Hazelton Agrarian Work Centre for Women, a prison for women in trouble, then in the spring of 1926 joins a mule train, leaving it at Echo Creek to walk alone to Dawson City on the Yukon River, managing 20 miles a day. Her intention is to take a boat to the Bering Sea, crossing into Chukot. She does reach Dawson City. She does buy herself a boat, but she never crosses the Bering Sea, never finds her beloved Sophie. Instead, she finds John Bishop, another person who has found his life in ruins, and together they build a marriage and a family. This ending was the first thing I loved about the book because essentially Lillian and John both deserve their happy ever after. It is bittersweet, a second chance, but it is undeniably an HEA. And then there are the other endings that Bloom gives us, with the power of a self-effacing but omniscient narrator who lets us readers know the fates not just of Lillian and John, but of all the characters who shape Lillian's decisions and paths in America. Towards the end of various chapters, we find out what happens to Reuben Burstein, the theatre owner, father of Maya and Lillian's lover. Then there is Maya, beautiful and closeted. Reuben's friend Yakov, who has helped Lillian leave New York. Rysela, Lillian's ruthless, cold-hearted cousin, Gumdrop, who uses Snooky's money to become Clotilde, respectable, educated and eventually a happily married pillar of St Paul's Minnesota society. We find out the fate of Arthur Gilpin and Chicky Chinky, one of the inmates at Hazelton. And best of all, we find out what happened to Sophie, who has been kept safe and alive by her foster parents, the Pinskys, despite the dangers of growing up in Stalinist USSR. For an end reader like me, incapable of standing the suspense of not knowing what will happen to characters, Bloom provides enormous satisfaction and dramatic irony. For example, when Lillian remembers Reuben and Yakov while she is struggling, struggling her way towards Dawson City without realising that both, by the summer of 1926, have died. Picaresque, delicate, the book transports us from one hostile environment to the next. Lillian endures, driven by the extraordinary moment when Risela reveals, against all expectations actually telling the truth for once, that Sophie is alive. One of the complaints about the book was that Lillian was too remote and mechanical, but for the first third of the book, she is in a state of trauma, numbed and distant from the events around her, the uncomfortable voyage to Ellis Island, the grim conditions at her cousin Frieda's house, the mechanical act of making love with either Maya or Reuben. All that consumes her is a passion for learning English, a love of myth and literature, of words which are protective barriers between herself and the indelible horrors she has endured. When Risela speaks, Lillian is absolutely consumed, and where she was frozen, 
Now she is suddenly flammable, consumed by the heat of desire for her child. And then she begins her journey. I remember thinking the first time I read it that it was not dissimilar to Condide, one of the books that was a near contender for this podcast. Episodic, ironic, philosophical. Both Voltaire and Bloom explore what drives us as humans. But where Voltaire is cynical and satirical, Bloom is more restorative, generous, offering redemption and resolution to her characters, major and minor. Both Candide and Lillian suffer and endure irrational and unreasonable punishments. Both end up more or less cultivating their gardens. But where Candide is the product of a cool 18th century rationalist, Lillian seems to have an existence which owes more to a consciousness that is humane, generous and able to accept and celebrate the contradictions inherent in our actions. When I popped along to Goodreads to take a look at the reviews for Away, I was astounded. For me, it is a definitive five-star book and on rereading, that is more than ever the case. I love the writing and listened happily in preparation for this podcast to Amy Bloom's reading of the opening of the book, enjoying her rich, swift delivery of the vivid creation of a street in New York and Lillian's packed but detached memories of arriving at Ellis Island, her longing to escape the sweatshop where she has been sewing navy artificial flowers until her hands are blue. And yet, there, on Goodreads, it has an average of just over three stars, with around 1,100 one- and two-star reviews. I went to these to try to understand just how anyone could dislike or detest or loathe this story. As I read the reviews, my jaw dropped. The readers who absolutely hated the book had not read the same book as I had, one they described as packed with unnecessary sex and a deeply unsympathetic, manipulative, cold heroine. Definitely, absolutely not the book I read. Yes, there are, in the language of trigger warnings and film rating scenes of a sexual nature, but actually not that many. There are cool depictions of physical moments with Maya and, separately, his father Reuben. There is a tragicomic account of Lillian's attempt to please a porter in Chicago to save the $5 she needs to pay him for space in a cupboard on the westward train heading to Seattle. And there is the troubling scene where she and Gumdrop engage in a ménage à trois with Snooky. But none of the sex scenes were that explicit or gratuitous. They make sense in the narrative, drive the plot and our understanding of Lillian forward. And when, finally, she is able to be tender, to bring pleasure and take pleasure, it is after incredible hardship and suffering. It comes as solace and comfort between two vulnerable, damaged people who manage eventually to heal each other. This, for me, was and continues to be the solace of the book. Early on, one of Lillian's memories is of her father calling her Lucky, smart and pretty and better than both Lucky, Bloom gently says at that time she was. Then there is the worst of catastrophes, the most terrible disruption of her very essence of her life. The readers who dislike the book seem to skate over the horror of what Lillian has experienced, the extremity, the vicious, meaningless brutality of the pogrom. 
Bloom, in an interview some years ago, compared Lillian's journey as an odyssey. I wonder what the disappointed readers of Away, brought to the book by their fellow book group members, would make of Odysseus a far more ruthless, opportunistic figure than Lillian could ever be. But the book is an odyssey, a tough and relentless road to explore and understand this new place, this immense new country that Lillian must make her own, that she must adapt to and absorb and integrate herself into. This exploration of an America that was at once familiar and unfamiliar was another feature of the story I loved. It is a tale of assimilation about that switch in identity that is necessary to become part of a new world, to make a new home, to make a new life for oneself. The 1920s are almost a cliché of a period, so familiar from so many iterations, from the novels of Thornton Wilder and Scott Fitzgerald to the pastiche of Some Like It Hot or Bugsy Malone. Bloom begins by taking some of the clichés and then breaking them completely. Finally, running through the novel is Lillian's love of her new language, of the richness and delight of learning English, building steadily her understanding of the immediate world that she finds herself in and the growing grasp she has of a hinterland shaped by books and stories that she has not previously known. Perhaps even more satisfying than her ability to find happiness in her life with John Bishop is her career as a teacher of English, sharing her passion for Greek myth, for poetry, for Shakespeare. Next week, I'll be looking at another book with Russia at its heart, a novel that absolutely carried me away. Join me for my encounter with A People's Act of Love by James Meek.